0: for private equity and these management companies to even exist, they have to be able to win these contracts. And it's clear that hospitals and other facilities are looking to change their contracts with their existing anesthesia providers in part because of these subsidies. And so these companies are coming in and saying like, we don't even need a subsidy. Like we barely need a subsidy. In fact, we're going to help lower your costs because we're going to replace half your anesthesiologists with CRNAs.
1: Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to episode 154 of Anesthesia Pain Management Success. My special guest for this week is Dr. Ambra Laforgia, who I'm very pleased to be speaking with. Dr. LaForgia is a PhD of applied economics from Wharton. Her area of professional focus is understanding the impact of healthcare consolidation, specifically as it relates to the price of care, as well as, interestingly, clinical decision making, among other things. And she recently authored two papers specifically related to anesthesia. So I'm really excited to have her here today. Welcome, Dr. LaForgia.
0: Thanks, Justin.
1: Uh, So for starters, would love to hear, you know, this is your papers, which I uh, really enjoyed, enjoyed understanding a little bit about the method and even just the, the thesis talk a little bit about your interest in looking at healthcare forces and the impact that it has on patients and on doctors.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you gave a little bit more of my background, but I kind of entered the path of healthcare via economics and mathematics, where I was really interested in, in that route. But then I wanted to have make sure my research had more of a policy impact or like was helping people in some way, whether those people are practitioners or patients. And so I thought healthcare was like such a perfect way to kind of marry my interests, especially my, my policy interests. And so my phd as you said it was a, it's, a, it's a managerial science and applied economics and so i was really interested in this like healthcare management idea of well we know that if you institute a clinical protocol that might impact the way that care is delivered, or if you train physicians differently, that's going to impact outcomes. But what happens if you change management? What if you change the administrative side of things? If you uh, give physicians training in financial analytics, how might that inform their decision-making? And so looking more about how this management intervention can impact healthcare outcomes as well has been a big part of my research. And a lot of it has been motivated by the ongoing corporatization of medicine as we've seen private equity, management companies, insurance companies, large hospital corporations are rapidly acquiring physician practices and really changing the way that they're being managed as well.
1: Yeah. I'm really interested in talking about the two anesthesia papers I mentioned, but before we do that, I want to do a quick little left-turn rabbit trail here. I'm curious to understand your initial impressions based on the research you've done thus far. As it relates to, you know, clinical decision-making, clinical outcomes, like the care that doctors are actually providing and the differences in if they're in a, you know, whatever sort of exhibit A is a, a smaller private practice or a something where there's less, we'll call it professional management versus a more structured, maybe private equity, just bigger healthcare organization type of setting.
0: Yeah, so we don't actually know that much about how especially quality outcomes are affected by the ownership Um, because this is kind of this new area. It's also really hard to study. That's why you're not seeing that much research here, because it took it takes years to put together these data sets on who is owning who, who is being acquired when that allows us to really rigorously look at, at these outcomes. But for the most part, if I can synthesize a little bit of the research in the space that has been done. Uh, A lot of papers tend to find that there's actually no effect on quality whatsoever. And so you might see spending go up, you might see prices go up, but you're not really seeing a change in quality. And so on net, that's considered to be kind of a bad thing because if you're increasing the overall cost of care, but you're not really doing that, not investing in quality, then that's not going to be a great outcome. On the other hand, I do have some um, some research that is trying to get a little bit more at quality, and I tend to I'm finding nuanced uh, results there specifically where it depends a lot on who is managing you and what their management philosophy is. Because if you're coming in, and some management companies are all about providing like population health services and analytics and helping physicians track their clinical outcomes and and give them report cards that compare their outcomes to others, like you could imagine that that could lead to better outcomes. But if instead they're coming in and saying like, hey, you need to increase your bottom line, you need to be more productive, you need to keep those revenue thresholds, that might uh, lead to physicians that either subconsciously or under that pressure to then deliver unnecessary services, which might be bad for the patient. So you really can see things going both ways in this, in this case.
1: Let's talk a little bit about data, and then we'll transition to the, the papers. Because you mentioned you know, how difficult it is. I know you look at over 2 million different patient records and across providers, across all types of institutions, different ownership structures. You know, I gotta imagine that getting, you can't just raise your hand and say, hey, I want all this information and then people are gonna fork it over. So can you talk a little bit about the process of getting access to a data set like what you described so that you can draw these types of important conclusions?
0: Absolutely. So I'm very fortunate that I worked with a fabulous team of researchers at Wall Cornell Medical College, and they had a few grants from uh, the Arnold Ventures, the Physicians Foundation, and then I, I was brought in via the Commonwealth Fund grant, and we are Our whole goal was to study how the corporatization of medicine is impacting all sorts of outcomes. And so with that money, we were able to acquire Healthcare Cost Institute data. So it's HCCI, um, and it's this collaborative of Aetna, United, and Humana gave all of their claims and de-identified them so you can't track patients to allow researchers to study all sorts of different questions. And so that's how we got access to this really, really large data set of like three major insurers and so that was one aspect but then the other aspect was getting a team of researchers and myself to go through and understand go through transactions and corporate filings and business intelligence databases to really see like which practice was being acquired when when did a facility contract with one of those uh, management companies and so that was the really labor-intensive part.
1: Yeah. I <laughs> I can imagine that it would take a team. Well, In two that, years. Yeah. Wow. Okay, cool. So there's the, d- tell us about what you found and, and the, the research that you did.
0: Yeah. So I have this, the one paper that is looking at what happens to commercial prices when a facility contracts with an anesthesia management company. So anesthesia, we're calling, we call them phys, uh, physician management companies, but they're sometimes called management service organizations, physician practice management companies, or physician staffing firms. They're kind of all the similar flavor flavor of organization. But in this setting, like what I'm talking about is an organization like Mednax, Team Health, um, Envision, the ones that are, for the most part, employing anesthesiologists and then providing staffing services to facilities via some sort of contract arrangement. And so we wanted to know when a facility contracted with this type of firm. How did this influence prices? And the reason that we were looking at anesthesia is because of the prevalence of these organizations in that setting, where we estimated that in 2018 around 22% of all anesthesia practitioners, including CRNAs, were in the uh, were employed by one of these organizations, and we're able to look at the universe of all the different types of management companies because they vary a lot. Some of them are small and regional, others are really large national multi-specialty companies. And so this allowed us to make also some distinguishing, This allowed us to distinguish between whether they were backed by private equity or not. And so this is where the private equity comes in because some of these management companies can be owned, have outside funding from private equity and others do not. And so that really was allowing us to look at, well, are there going to be price differences depending on this ownership? And so the takeaway here that we ended up finding is that there were large price effects after a facility contracted. And so we're talking about like a 16.5 increase in prices after a a management contract started in terms of, one thing I really like about anesthesia, and actually that's another reason why we did look at anesthesia too, is the pricing structure is really different than a lot of uh, other services in healthcare. So. In other places, in other specialties, you might have to like choose one service and look at the price negotiated for that. But in anesthesia, because of the conversion factor or what we're calling the unit price, most negotiations are happening over that single price, and so we can look at all services, and so it gives us like a, a cleaner way of looking at price changes. And so we found that these prices increased significantly compared to control facilities, but then. We looked at the difference between the private equity and the non-private equity, and we saw that most of this price effect was being driven by the private equity backed management companies. So that's kind of the the high-level
1: story. So if there's a price increase, 16.5 percent across the data that you examined, who's paying that? Can you sort of help us trace the flow of money?
0: Yeah. So that is what the insurer is paying the provider. So. To give you like a dollar value, this meant that there was like, an, we found an $18, almost $19 per unit, so unit price increase in the price paid for services. And so that's what the insurer uh, and the clinician or the management company negotiated as the new unit price. And so, you know, almost a $20 increase in the unit price is, is a pretty significant increase. But we, we can say too that we don't really, we can't really say what this price increase means for practitioners because a lot of these are salaried employees so it's not like physicians are suddenly having a windfall of payment this is going through the management organization so how they're redistributing that price increase you know that's that's up for discussion and so we are very careful to say that it's it's this might not benefit practitioners very much at all
1: so physicians who are employed you know if you're if you're a w2 employee in any of the big groups that you just named obviously you're Getting paid what you're getting paid, maybe you're on production to some extent. Maybe there's a productivity sort of mechanism to give you a little bit of incentive if you're doing more. But in general, if the group you're working for negotiates way better contracts because they have a, you know, more negotiating power and more leverage, as an employee, you kind of just don't really care. At least economically, you're you're indifferent. Is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, I think that's that's definitely the right takeaway here. And so that does open this question of like, we're, okay, what are these higher these higher prices? In general, if prices go up from the insurer, the insurer is going to pass that on to patients because that means now patients are going to be paying more out of pocket for their co- their copay, but also eventually in higher premiums. So at the end of the day, like we can definitely say that patients are being wor- are are worse off because of these price increase price increases, and it's unclear whether practitioners are really that much better off because of the salary structure. Though, as you noted, there's like the productivity bonus, and so maybe there is some sort of bonus system, but that really we don't know. That's a black box of contracting that we can't get into.
1: Yeah. And in my uh observation, employed physicians who are on W2 have kind of a capped ceiling in terms of uh the economics of their compensation. Do you ha- did you have any visibility to like which groups negotiated the best deals and who is the one, you know, which groups are the ones associated with more of the price increase uh, with negotiating with the insurers? And is that something you're at liberty to share. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like, uh, we didn't really, it's hard to look at like company specific effects because the, the sample size is small, but we, as I mentioned, we did see the stronger effect in the private equity owned ones. And so we wanted to understand a bit more of why, why was private equity so much better? Because. Ex-ante, I didn't really, these are all for-profit companies. They're all trying to I- increase their revenue in some way. What would make a publicly traded company or a small privately held company worse, you know, increasing prices in one of these private equity-backed ones? And so we did a little analysis to see like where are these companies located? And we found that the private equity ones tended to be located much had higher concentration in certain geographic areas, especially in the South. So it looks like there was this kind of market power story where they're really gaining leverage in a small geographic market, which also can help them build expertise in negotiating in a certain area, which might allow them to extract higher payment. And in general, private equity, too, like they're on a three to seven year horizon to increase shareholder value before they sell the company off again. And so they do have stronger incentives to increase revenue quite quickly. And so one of the easier ways to do that would be to jack up the price.
1: Do do you have visibility to the sort of the the size of the companies that we're talking about? So here's what I'm wondering, are all the private equity companies like bigger? Obviously, if you're publicly traded, then you're even probably bigger than a private equity backed company. And then private equity kind of slots in that next in terms of size. And then all the, you know, having more minority partners and then just physician owned would kind of be at the bottom in terms of the totem pole of size. So to what extent do you think these effects that you observed are a product of size versus like, I mean, it's kind of common to say like private equity is like a buzzword. Like all that's evil in medicine is private equity. And yeah. Let's point at them and talk about how bad they are. I'm wondering how much of it is that like ownership structure and that incentive created by that, what you just described, the three to seven year, we got to buy this thing, get it worth as much as possible and then sell it to the next guy versus just a bigger company can negotiate more. Do, do you understand what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, size is a big factor in, in, in the negotiating leverage. And we actually saw that the distribution of size was quite similar between the two groups. So whether you were a publicly traded company, you're gonna be quite large. We had some private equity ones that were really small and regional, other ones that were quite large and more multi-specialty national presence. Um, and so we didn't really find that variation in the size, but we didn't do a separate analysis by um, firm size yet. But that's definitely trying to understand a bit more of these underlying mechanisms that could be driving these outcomes. is certainly like a stream of research that people are interested. In. But for us, our key goal is just to be like at a high level, like what's happening here.
1: So the second paper related to the No Surprises Act, a couple of states in particular that are known for their, we'll call them unique marketplace dynamics as it relates to healthcare, California, Florida, New York. So talk about that paper.
0: Yeah, so what's funny about that paper is that it was actually an accidental offshoot of the management um, paper because we had been looking at the data and I was starting to compile just like some mean statistics on the prices. And I was like, what Why are these prices changing so much in these three states at this exact time? And that's when I was like, oh, it's the passage of the surprise billing laws that seems to be influencing these payments. And so that's, we kind of put the private equity paper on pause and dug into the surprise billing literature and trying to understand uh, what was going on there. And so we looked at Florida, New York and California, because those were the three that had passed comprehensive laws during our sample period that allowed us to compare them to place uh, to states that didn't pass laws. Uh, there were some other states that did pass laws, but they were really small, and so they didn't really have that much that many surprise medical bills for us to look at. And so our first question was just like, how did these surprise billing laws impact pay, like the out-of-network payment rate for potential surprise bills and in anesthesia? Because that's what these bills were trying to do is to develop a way for providers to be paid for their out-of-network service. But the three states implemented very different designs where California has, California is very different, as as you noticed, um, more restrictive, what was called a payment standard that was tied to median in-network rates. And so we definitely saw prices fall immediately and stuck to that payment rate, whereas Florida had a little bit more complex uh, choices of different prices that could be uh, looked at for the payment standard. It was like the greater of a bunch of different factors. and so prices we did see we did see prices go down there, but not by the same degree. And then New York had the independent dispute resolution process, which is what the no surprises act is now trying to work off of. And so in New York, because of that, we saw slightly different patterns. but still, prices eventually went down for the out of, out of network payments
1: so it sounds like to kind of summarize the 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 impact of private equity ownership and the negotiating power that comes with private equity backing of an anesthesia group on one hand is a can be an upward lever for price the no surprises act and the impact that it's having is is the inverse and these are happening at the same time i guess everywhere is it is there a national like if you know we got two kids sitting on a seesaw like which one weighs more which which of these is going to carry the day or does it is it regionally dependent or do you have any Thoughts or ideas about that?
0: Yeah. So in the private equity one, we did account those price effects were independent of the effects that were happening at the state level because we accounted for those state level price changes. And so it's like holding the surprise billing laws constant, this is how prices were impacted. And in the surprise billing one, our main result was looking at these out-of-network prices versus the in-network prices, which we also looked at and we did find that there were spillover effects of. Of out of net of the surprise billing laws onto the in-network price negotiations that led to smaller declines in the negotiated in-network payment rate. But so overall, if if you did have to do like a horse race between the two, for the for the management company prices, like those prices went up more than the decline in the, the effect of the surprise billing act. But we're looking at completely like different, you know, populations because one was like looking at all across the US for this is just a uh, very targeted look at some state level effects.
1: If you put on your hospital administrator hat for a minute and you're trying to look at the the hospital P&L and you know, the the sort of classic example slash problem is that anesthesia is seen as nothing but a a cost. And as such, your costs, you want to keep them as low as you possibly can without a significant detrimental, obviously like clinical outcome. And so one of the, You know, if there's an RFP, a request for proposal, that an administrator says, "Hey, we we're a hospital. We've got an anesthesia group. We think they're you know they just asked for double the stipend. We've been paying them seven hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, and now they're asking for a million and a half. And we don't think that it warrants that cost. And so we want to see what else is out there. Based on what you're describing, it sounds like a private equity-backed group, by and large, would there would be a case to be made to say that they are going to demonstrably (laughs) likely have more purchasing power, more negotiating leverage with the insurers, and therefore may be able to reduce the pressure at the hospital level because if you can get more money from the insurance company, you don't need as much from the hospital in order to keep your lights on. So it sounds like there is credence. Again, we're talking about like all these different companies kind of with one number, 16%. It's such a it's a it's an oversimplification for sure, but the thesis. That someone would say that we can negotiate better contracts, that sounds like that is observable based on what you've seen.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, what we are part of this tango that's going on is for private equity and these management companies to even exist, they have to be able to win these contracts. And it's clear that hospitals and other facilities are looking to change their contracts with their existing anesthesia providers in part because of these subsidies. And so these companies are coming in and saying like, we don't even need a subsidy. Like we barely need a subsidy. In fact, we're gonna help lower your cost because we're gonna replace half your anesthesiologist with CRNAs. And some of them have full fully CRNA um, models in some states that allow that. And so that is certainly one of the aspects that is driving this change is also the facility demand for these types of groups. But there are these concerns as well with extreme disruption to care. And you do see like these either like legal battles or local news things about this, like, some people, some anesthesia, you know, private anesthesia groups being like, we just lost our twenty-year contract. Like, this is our relationship with this community and with these surgeons, and now you're going to bring in um, potentially like a lot of outsiders or like local tenants as well, and like that could drive down um, quality of care. And so that's definitely a concern that we heard in this space, but we didn't study directly.
1: Yeah, and one additional sort of counterpoint to what I just shared before is if you think about the margin you know, the, the PL of the business that's operating the anesthesia services, if you're a, we'll call it for just for gross oversimplification purposes, a mom and pop style, you know, physician owned, generally pretty lean. Like we don't have outside executives that we're paying and we don't have, you know, it's a low overhead operation. So even though the, perhaps they don't have the big clout to get the best possible contract, they're probably, they theoretically should have more control for their costs to keep them lower than if you have a private equity backed group that needs to return X percent a year to shareholders and trying to you know, do some window dressing in order to do another sale in a handful of years. So that takes a lot of discernment, obviously, from someone who's trying to say like, do we do we keep the relationship that we have or do we make a change? That is not always an easy question to answer.
0: Yep. And that's what a lot of organizations are doing now. Though the other strategy too is there's one, there's like the, the straight out like responding to RFPs and and winning contracts through that mode. But a lot of these private equity companies are just acquiring, just acquire the mom and pop groups and just take over the contract that they already have. And so that leads to a bit of a smoother transition and less disruption. Um, But of course, then that puts the anesthesiologist in this decision of like, Oh, should I sell my practice? What is, what does this mean for my autonomy? What does this mean for my income? Like greater, greater questions are raised.
1: Yes. So you said at the beginning that you want your work to impact policy and to affect change in society with some of these like very big, seemingly irresistible forces of uh, of healthcare momentum. Talk about what do you what kind of impact do you hope your work has.
0: Yeah, well, what's kind of funny is because, as you said, one of my papers saw prices decline and other ones saw prices increase, that this paper has been used to justify multiple stories and uh, legal, legal disputes in very different ways. But I do think it's interesting to be able to inform, for example, the No Surprises Act and its current discussion around the independent dispute resolution process and how that might influence physicians and that there are unintended consequences to if you're changing the way how out of network is being negotiated, perhaps you are placing too much power in the hands of the insurer. And that's going to lead that to spill over into in-network prices, but also network formation. So the choice to be out of network, because I know there has been a lot of concern from physicians that they're being moved, they're being forced out of network by the insurance uh, company or vice versa, because they don't, want to be, they don't want to accept these really low prices that the insurer is offering. So that's like one way I think that the study helps inform, like we have to think about the unintended consequences of our policies. The other thing that I think is so important, which I've we've talked about a bit here is transparency, like for everybody, like physicians would be happy, I think to have more transparency in what the heck these contracts look like, what they're really giving up in the process, like understanding more about corporate practice of medicine laws and how they vary by states and how they're being enforced or not enforced, uh, how these non-compete clauses are looking like. Patients have no idea who owns who and what kind of provider that they're seeing. They don't even know if their provider is out of network or in network um, a lot of the time, especially for anesthesia or emergency medicine. So allowing for more transparency, I think in ownership and and status would be uh, really important. And then the third concern here is about antitrust. As we talked about, there, a lot of the concentration is happening in the South and in certain other areas that are leading to the formation of really large mega groups. And granted, like part of that might be a response to the other consolidation that's happening in healthcare of insurers are super concentrated, hospitals are super concentrated. So physicians are kind of like the next big area that's trying to keep up with that. And so a lot of, a lot of questions to think about.
1: Do the hospital price transparency rules that are kind of coming into effect now and are being sort of rolled out, but not really enforced, or maybe that's kind of in flux, is does that interact with your work at all?
0: I know about this, but I haven't been studying about the transparency aspect here, but I do think it is important, though I, I know that a lot of hospitals have been very reluctant to share or are finding ways of not necessarily posting the the correct prices, and that is there's a reason for that, but because they usually hospitals, insurance companies hold a lot of the cards, right? They know the price of things. And so physicians and patients are the ones that are left like kind of figuring out like how much should we be paid for this or how much should I be paying for this? And so putting that out there might improve our ability to negotiate like transparently and fairly.
1: If you were talking to a physician and they're asking you like, what does this say about the future of our specialty for me as a doctor? Cause that's all I really, I mean, aside from the work that I do with patients, I, I, I'm I worried about what, what does this mean for me? How do you process that on behalf of a physician?
0: Yeah. I mean, my heart goes out to the to physicians, like especially the ones that are running their own private practice as they're becoming a smaller and smaller set of of, of people because you're now having to choose, like, do I sell to an insurer? Do I sell to a hospital? Do I sell to a management company or private equity, or do I try to form a mega integrated group with other providers? Like those, those seem like the major options across many specialties, including anesthesia. And so you're really weighing a lot of of the different trade offs that could happen here. But one thing that I think is interesting in the setting too is just thinking about like physician well being because we. I mean, burnout amongst physicians has only gotten considerably worse since the COVID-19 pandemic. And increasingly, you're just seeing a lot of physicians be like, look, as we were talking about before we started recording, like a lot of clinicians, like they're not taught to run a business, like they're not taught management and, and business practice skills. And so on top of having to like stay on top of the research and literature and be a great clinician and push quality forward and be there for your patients, you're also having to run like the administrative side of the practice and deal with HR and negotiations. Like that sounds like a really unnecessary burden um, to put on someone's shoulder, unless they love it, in which case like good for you. But I can see why physicians are increasingly wanting to sell to relieve themselves of that burden. and. Some like the value proposition that management companies do offer is like, hey, like we're actually not going to interfere with your clinical practice as much. We're just going to take over the administrative portion. And so, potentially finding that sort of like relationship that really works for you, I could see that as being quite beneficial to a physician versus selling to an insurer or hospital, which might really change the way you're practicing in in your day to day work environment. So That's why I don't try to villainize uh, private equity or management companies, because I do see the potential downsides, but also the potential upsides.
1: Absolutely. Well, uh, for any listeners who want to check out Dr. LaForge's work, we'll link to it in the show notes. So apmsuccess.com slash 154 will link to uh, her CV as well as the papers we've discussed today. Dr. LaForge, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. I will continue to follow your work. I think this is a topic of keen interest, not only to me, but to many of our listeners. So it's been a pleasure speaking with you today.
0: Awesome. Great. Thank you so much, Justin.
1: If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.